Welcome to episode three of Beyond the Obvious, a podcast series organized by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Conline. We're very pleased to introduce a new member of our team on this month's podcast. I'm Claire Hulan. I'm 16. I'll be joining in on this podcast series to give my impressions and ask a few questions about the topic we're discussing. In this episode, we'll be questioning some of the standard assumptions that tend to get made about identity and ownership that can have damaging effects on our environment and our communities. Later on, we'll be hearing from Orla O'Donovan from the School of Applied Social Studies in University College Cork, who's done extensive research into the commons, which provide an alternative relationship to the economy and the biosphere that falls outside the more usual market or state dichotomy. But first, we're going to hear a manifesto that has been written and recorded by Paddy Bush. Paddy Bush is a poet and a philosopher who lives in the southwest of Ireland on the Ivra Peninsula. He has a particular liking and fondness for some of the old mythology stories about Ireland and also about ecological impact of the way we live in Ireland and particularly in the southwest of Kerry. A Migrant Poet's Ecological Manifesto My house sits on a low cliff overlooking Ballanskelligs Bay in Evra in southwest Kerry. The cliff is soft, being composed of clay and small boulders. It is there since the last ice age, glacial drift carried down from mountains a few kilometres inland and deposited here when the slow-moving ice reached the sea. It is just one aspect of the land shaping by glacial action that you can see all over this area. One of the most beautiful places in Ireland owes a large part of its character to what happened during a very different climate which lasted until about 12 millennia ago. In the millennia and centuries since then, the action of the tides, especially when driven by stormy weather coinciding with the spring tide, has been eroding that glacial moraine of clay and gravel. Even when we bought our house, we were vaguely conscious that at some distant time it would become vulnerable to the encroaching sea. But that was almost half a century ago, and we were young. Now, however, climate change of a man-made sort is accelerating that process, and the last seven or eight years has seen more incremental erosion than all our previous time here. All of a sudden, it seems the distant future is the immediate and frightening present. Of course, the house will be there for the remainder of our lifetime. But if sea levels rise, according to even the more moderate predictions of the scientific community, our beloved grandchild may well see the house he visits fall into the sea. Climate change has, for us, become a personal issue. I say all of this by way of an introduction to a poem which has increasingly fascinated me for over 40 years a poem ascribed to a mythological figure, 
the leader of a migrant group making an unauthorised landing. Amergin was the poet leader of the Miletian or Gaelic people, who, according to Anjaur Gwala, written down roughly a millennium ago, made their way from Galicia in northwestern Spain to the very shoreline where my house is perched on this sea-threatened cliff. As they landed, Anjaur Gwala tells us, Amergen put his right foot on the shore and recited a poem of identification with the surrounding landscape. This Miletian myth became part of a national and subsequently nationalist narrative of ownership, of possession. What I would like to do is to suggest that the story and the poem can be given another reading, a reading that reflects the reality of a migratory world, largely post-national, threatened with extinction because our overwhelmingly exploitative relationship with the land and the sea. Here is what Amergen recited, first in my translation into modern Irish and then into English. May grey er may town dealen, may glor mara, may dav shacht gorok, May fjallar er eil, may dior drucht of wing rain, may oilacht fosh, may turk er gail, may brodan selin, may loch er va, may si agana, may ga fui vua sli sacha, may dia einen tinna sechaun. Ke yenen reg clohan schle. Ke chahan solus er chrochen an a gali, ke o grian ka lihig an grian, ke chrorian a reelta mar vach na mara, ke er a heilsian a reelta shin. Cain draum, cain dia choran fair er lana inun eilse, quina na nga, quina na guiche. Am wind on sea, am waves swelling, am ocean's voice, am stag of seven clashes, am falcon on cliff, am sunlit dewdrop, am rarest of herbs, am boar enraged, am salmon in pool, am lake in plain, am learning's essence, am sharpened spear dealing death, Am God who kindles fire in the head. Who makes smooth the stony mountain? Who elucidates the lives of the moon? Who proclaims where the sun will rest? Who leads the stars like cattle from the ocean? On whom do those stars smile? What troop? What god edges blades in a plague-struck fortress? Keening of weapons, keening of wind. In my English translation, I use the repeated am rather than I am for two reasons. Firstly, I feel that the poem can be read 
and heard as a communal rather than an individual identification with place, an expression of a universal consciousness. Related to this, the original Middle Irish poem uses the Old Irish synthetic form om rather than ismisha or ismay, thus removing the personal pronoun from the statement. Secondly, that am reminds me of the sacred word om of Hindu and Buddhist mysticism. That may or may not be purely coincidence, but if so, it is at least a very serendipitous coincidence which I wanted to foreground. And in this regard, it has been pointed out that Amergan's poem has strong echoes of Krishna's statements of universality in section 10 of the Bhagavad Gita. Wherever it originated from, the poem Amergan recited on the shoreline just below my house long predated the beliefs of the monastic scribes who wrote it down a thousand years ago. But let me return to the present, or more importantly, the future. Our planet is faced with an imminent existential crisis, socially and environmentally. Our world will survive only if we recognise that the exploitative ownership and possession paradigm we have followed has failed and on foot of that recognition we begin to act as if we and other life forms are part of a universal organism in which all the components are interrelated and interdependent. This means that we must identify ourselves with the other life forms of the earth, the sea and the sky. And this is what Amergan's poem does. The poet, on behalf of his people, proclaims that he is the wind, is the sea, is the falcon, is the flower, is the salmon, is the lake, and so forth. If we can arrive at that level of consciousness, we can begin to stop destroying the basis of our own existence. And let us not forget that Amergan and his people were migrants. As Mary Robinson tirelessly points out, those who are already suffering most from climate change are the poorest, usually those whose territories have been for centuries exploited by richer countries which, even in post-colonial times, continue to fatten themselves at the expense of the weak. The primary purpose of the Liaur Gowala myth was to validate and elevate the Gaelic settlement of Ireland. Even so, there is an awareness throughout the narrative, particularly on the part of Amergen, of other races, languages and cultures, and a preference for integration rather than conquest or exclusion. This too will need to be part of any paradigm for our survival. Amergen, a poet, lawmaker and migrant whose existence may have been only in the realm of myth, nonetheless has much to teach us.
That was the poet Paddy Bush reading his migrant poet's ecological manifesto. If we take on board Paddy's argument that we need to find ways to identify ourselves with the other life forms of the earth, the sea and the sky, then an obvious next step would be to figure out what sort of practical, concrete measures can be taken to help achieve that. We spoke to Orla O'Donovan, a lecturer and researcher at University College Cork, who has done extensive research on the commons. To begin with, we asked Orla what her own reaction was to Paddy's manifesto. Well, the, the first thing that struck me when reading Paddy's manifesto was just the temporality of it, the relationship with time. So I really liked the way he located the, well, where his house sits on the cliff and the shaping of the cliff over time. So the, the time frame of his, of his piece is vast. And I think that's something that that kind of time frame is something we really need to cultivate. And it's not so much about seeing, you know, a range. It's not so much about being able to go way back in time, but it's also about maybe disrupting this idea that, you know, the past is very distinct from the present, but how things of the past have implications, live live with us in the present. And likewise, where he talks about, you know, the concerns with climate change and the concern about his, the, the likelihood of his house falling into the sea within the lifetime of his grandchildren. So it's where the future is present too. So not only is the, the temporal, the temporality of it, you know, the range of it fast, but it's also where this distinction between past, present and future isn't the conventional way in which we think of those. Also, what I like about that broad temporality of his piece is how it encourages a more human modesty. One of the things that has contributed to us being in the mess that we are in, environmentally and otherwise, is the very short time frame, the very short memory that we have. That's one piece that that really, really appealed to me. Then his response and his reinterpretation of the poem from On Lauer Gawala is is completely, I, th- I think it's completely in keeping with the the way people who are interested in the commons movement are encouraging us to rethink at a very fundamental level what it is to be human and also to rethink how we relate not only to each other but how we relate to, to things as well. So when I was reading... When I was reading some of the pieces, he has a whole section on where he abandons the ismisha or ismay and and replaces with the with the am. She connects beautifully with the om. But it is about trying to move away from the again the, the pervasive individualism of our time, where we have this mythical notion of ourselves as these singular entities and replaces that with you know an emphasis on interrelatedness and our our interdependencies i was at a fabulous talk recently given by the philosopher judith butler where she was talking about this problem this fundamental problem of this myth of the individual and she was talking about she she gave the example of the figure of Robinson Crusoe that this is the model of the the western individual so it's a man without needs a man who's radically self-sufficient 
But if we look at the story of of Robinson Crusoe, we can see that Robinson Crusoe was, you know, completely dependent on the invisible assistance of Man Friday and others too, other beings and and other things. So so she was holding up this mythical figure of Robinson Crusoe as this the Ismay, the the original reading of Amergen coming in, staking his claim and, and you know, so she too was calling for this abandonment of the Robinson Crusoe figure and the replacement of the the figure that that Paddy is calling uh, on us to see ourselves as interrelated and interdependent. So I loved it. Great. Maybe just linking into that, and maybe you could just uh, talk a little bit, like the current Commons approach, if you take it that way. It generally, it's spoken about in the context of climate change. Certainly, everybody is starting to realise that we need to act urgently now. I mean, there's a, a, a really a sense, if not a crisis, then of urgency coming about, and it's only the political leadership is which is, is kind of not doing anything. But how, thinking of what you just said about Paddy Bush and temporality and all the rest of it, uh, how significant can approach to the Commons can it be in tackling climate change? I think it offers considerable potential, considerable potential, because I think we are living a time when, as you say, increasingly the dysfunctional market and state relations are becoming more and more apparent. And I think what the Commons movement does is it um, it it shows us that the state and the market don't just exhaust our range of possibilities, that there are other possibilities too. Now, I think it is important to acknowledge that the you know the commons movement is very much a work in progress and there's all sorts of internal divisions within the the commons movement there's all kinds of versions of it but i think what unifies these movements or unifies this this movement is a recognition of the possibility of the commons and also i suppose conventionally there's this idea well for many years there has been this idea that commons initiatives inevitably fail because human beings are fundamentally competitive or individualistic or greedy or, you know so that there has been this idea that because of the human condition understood in a very particular way that the commons that commoning is impossible and uh, paddy Bush doesn't accept that that is the kind of even range of possibilities of what it is to be human, that we see that to be human can be something other than being individualistic, competitive, greedy, etc. Then the this argument about the inevitable you know, tragedy of the commons, that can go. But I think within the commons movement, what has been significant has been the work of people who have shown that it's not just, you know, that the commons isn't just a utopian project, but that there are many examples of actual commoning in practice. There are many existing um, things happening in the, in the world around us where we can see real life commoning. Some people call these nautopias, you know, where it's it's not just something in the future, but that we can see these in, in, in the present. So these do offer some sort of alternative so I think one of the one of the major contributions of the Commons as a broad approach, one of the big contributions is that is it helps to move us away from seeing, you know, what we might call nature, move us away from even the thinking of nature in terms of natural resources. 
so it it helps us get away from this idea that aspects of nature such as water are there that they're resources to be owned either publicly or privately but that need to be managed um, and that can that are the raw material for economic production what the commons approach gets us to do is not only to rethink what it is to be human but it also gets us to rethink these well to go beyond this this idea of resources so going back to paddy's poem you know where he talks about you know maid lore mara or in his english translation am ocean's voice or later in his discussion where he talks about Amergen's poem that he's speaking collectively where he says he is the wind, he is the sea. It is where we see our connections with, if we take water, that it's rather than seeing water as this thing outside of ourselves, what a commons approach or some versions of, of commoning encourage us to see is that we can't be separated from water. That there's always water in us and through us, going going through us. So it's it's this idea of a separateness doesn't really stand up to our experiences of the world. We had a wonderful thinkery on water here a few years ago, and we had a woman called Chas Jewish who's involved in. She's one of the Standing Rock water protesters. Uh, or protectors and she talked about how one of their slogans is we are water so it's it's about asserting that connection rather than you know water is something that we feel that we have a right to but it's actually part of us so it is that radical rethinking of our relationship with the land or sea or water that, that that move away from the resources thinking this idea that these are things to be exploited and used by us i think that offers some sort of radical step away from the very dysfunctional market and state relations we've had with water and other things in the past we've all lived in ireland we've lived through the whole water charges uh, debacle let's put it that way and how so many people in ireland have this a kind of a sense that water is a human right for us to have and we shouldn't pay for it at all. In your discussions um, at that thinkery, what would your reaction be to that? I mean, is that part of a, a kind of a fundamental Irish approach to the commons or is it something which you would consider to be negative? Well, no, the, the, the whole controversy about water was um, central to that Tinkery and water that we held here a few years ago. I was one of the people who was opposed to the introduction of water charges. And in fact, I served on the, the public water forum as um, somebody who was opposed to water charges. And my opposition was based on, well, I, I felt that it was an austerity measure, so I opposed it on, on that basis. But also, one of the reasons I didn't support the introduction of charges, because I know many people within the environmental movement felt that, you know, the plastic bag charges, etc., this was a good way, that it's an effective way of getting people to, I suppose, be mindful of, you know, their use of plastics or their use of water. But what what I what I disliked about charges was that it really appealed to an economic mentality. So it's where you appeal to people just as economic actors, which isn't what the Commons movement does. 
And what I think the what the commons movement and what we were exploring in how within so if you take the water controversy in Ireland, that part of the well one one of the issues we explored was how many people now not not everybody in Ireland certainly people who are not part of group water schemes but for many people particularly people living in urban areas that we have very little understanding or appreciation of the where water comes or goes to you know so you put on your tap it comes out you don't know where it comes you you know that we have this disconnection from different type of water disconnection to what was being threatened to people who wouldn't pay but it's where it's where you know you turn on your water without any great knowledge of where it comes to and likewise you know you flush your toilet or you lay water go down your sink and you've no idea where it goes i really like the idea or the argument that's made by the he's a commons theorist by gustavo esteva the mexican commons theorist where he talks about the flush toilet as being the you know the perfect metaphor for a consumer society where you basically you do your shit and you wash your hands of it you forget about it. somebody else's problem so part of what we were talking about at the at the thinkery and part of what a commons response to the the water struggles in Ireland would be it, that first of all we need to we need to become more knowledgeable about it. we need to remember where water comes from we need to remember where it goes to we need some sort of basic water literacy that was one point the other was that and it's going back to the point in paddy bush's piece where he's talking about the interrelatedness and the interdependency this where he's removing the ismission this may so he's seeing this as a more collective relationship with the the dew or with the cliff or with the sea or the wind um, and the other strategy or that we saw is that it's like a, a remembering but where you hyphen so it's re dash membering where it's trying to recover this kind of disconnection how we've become separated disconnected dismembered from the world around us. Commons Project is about re-establishing, like remembering ourselves, remembering, reconnecting with the with water as just part of the, the world around us. What would we need to do to make a change to a more commons-based society and economy? And how long will it take for us to make these changes? Well, I think it's good to look for sources of inspiration from people who are already engaged in commoning, who are actually part of these nowtopias, even no matter how modest they are. So these might be people who are involved in community gardens, for example, or where people are engaged in some kind of experiments in actual commoning. And that it's not about seeing... Now, we can see some of these are quite famous and quite far away from us here in Ireland. So Gustavo Esther, for example, talks about how the Zapatistas for many years have, like in the in, in their, how they have been involved in their leaving commons. But I think we can see seeds of these new societies in our own in our own lives. We can see examples, even very small examples of where people are involved in commoning around, say, childcare. We do this often, you know, between friends and, and relatives. So it, it's not just all, you know, kind of major 
initiatives that are recognised, you know, for their, their political significance. But we can see the actual examples in, in relation to water. I think, and at our, our Think Graham Water and some work we've been doing subsequently, we can see how within group water schemes here in Ireland, that's where out of necessity, people have had to remember water, have had to know where it comes from and where it goes to, but also where people have been involved through community organising, been involved in relating to water in a very different way to those of us who just turn on our tap in, you know, in, in urban settings. That was Orla O'Donovan, a lecturer in Applied Social Studies at University College Cork, discussing the extensive research that she has done into the commons. In our next podcast, we'll be looking at what might happen if we apply a more commons-oriented mentality to money and the financial system. We'll be looking at alternatives to the current money system that might be a big help in moving towards a more balanced economy and society. So we hope you'll tune into the next episode of Beyond the Obvious, this time next month. Many thanks to Paddy Bush and to Orlo Donovan for their contributions. And as usual, to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. Thank you.